It is well, no matter what comes at you. Uh, thank you, worship team, Doug, pastor, <laughs> for worshiping, for leading us to worship today. Um, I, I do get to be the student pastor, and so I wanted to take the quick opportunity to share with you guys uh, some of the things that are coming up in the student ministry before we, we dive into the Word today. A um, uh, lot of people come and ask me, hey, Aaron, uh, know you're doing great things, but don't know what they are, or hey, you know, I haven't uh, heard what you guys are doing over there, or hey, I would sure love to know a little bit more about what you're going, what you're doing, and and so I thought it would great opportunity just to share um, just some things that are coming up in the next couple of weeks for the student ministry. Uh, one uh, is in, in September. Our, our revolution is our Wednesday night program. It's usually from about 6:30 to 8 p.m., and uh, we have students come from sixth to twelfth grade. And uh, they get to play little games, and then uh, we preach the word to them. And then usually there, there was some kind of worship service or something to that effect. And uh, we've, we've grown to the point where we need to expand. And, and that's a good thing, right? I mean, uh, we've grown. We've had about 50 students coming here and there. And uh, we're coming back from the summer, and we're getting back there. We took 40, 42 students to camp this year. Uh, which is maddening sometimes, but it was awesome on that bus, even though we had two flat tires. <laughs> anyway, I'll talk to you about my PTSD of the bus later. Um, but we have seen so much growth um, that we're, we're going to expand this year. Starting September 5th, what we are doing is we're, we're going to expand to two nights um, for, our, for our student ministries uh, midweeks. And so we're going to have a Sunday night uh, service and a Wednesday night service. And what we're going to do is we're going to have the 6th through 8th still come on Wednesday nights. They're going to go from 6.30 to 8 o'clock, and then our senior high is going to come on uh, Sunday nights from 5 to 6.30. And what this does is it allows us to really target the students in these age group. I don't know if you've spoke to sixth graders and 12th graders. I do every week. And I look at these little sixth graders that look like, like elementary kids, right? And then I talk to these 12th graders that are, they look like adults and they think like adults and trying to, to, to mash that all together. Sometimes it is difficult with some of the topics that, that we really need to speak into the life. And so it gives us a greater opportunity to speak directly at the age group that we're going to be uh, ministering to that night. Also, what it does is gives us a lower uh, leader to, to student ratio. What that does is it helps us control some of that uh, chaotic feel of having a lot of students running around. It also will give us an opportunity for our leaders to really invest more into our students. So that is one thing. But every fourth Wednesday, we don't want our students to feel divided. So every fourth Wednesday, we're going to gather all of our students together in our, our, our youth uh, room and uh, we are going to have an intense worship night, very much like the worship nights that we, we have been having, um, that, that the worship team have led. Um, it, it's just a real intense time of worshiping. There's going to be spoken word. There's going to be some drama, um, good drama, not the bad drama that usually happens in student ministry. And, um, and Emily Bibb, who just led that song, I don't know, there she is, she's going to actually be leading our worship team on Wednesday nights, those, those fourth Wednesdays. And then... On the fifth Wednesdays, the rare, rare uh, fifth Wednesdays come along. We're going to use them as big outreach opportunities. And so we're going to pull out all the stops and try to, try to bring all these students in from different schools that all of our schools are from all of our students attend, whether they're middle school and high school, we're going to bring them in and just have a really good time. And then every fifth Wednesday, we're going to 
to, to share the gospel with hopefully tons of visitors, and hopefully we'll see more people in that baptistry. So we're excited about some of those things. Some of the other things that are coming uh, about, uh, we have moved back our, our life groups to the Family Life Center, and we switched some leaders up. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask, if you're a leader in our student ministry, regardless of whether it's life group or not, I'm going to ask you to stand up. They didn't know I was going to do this. I'm so sorry for embarrassing you. Yeah, they're all over here. There's some in the balcony. There's some that couldn't make it. Some are actually serving in the children's ministry too. But hey, would you, would you guys mind giving them a hand? I tell them often this, and this is the truth. They're the reason that we can do student ministry. It's not me. Uh, uh, I show up and they have it handled and I, I, I get up and, and I teach the word, but they are the ones that are invested in this. If, if, we, can, if we can do Wednesday nights, we can do Sunday mornings without these, these leaders. So I am grateful to you and I, I hope that you'll continue to invest in students and I hope that you will pray for them. Um, so we've moved back and we've changed up some of our life groups. Um, also, some, some things that are coming up is next week is our back to school Big bash, right? Um, we were pushing it. We actually have connected with the youth ministry over at First Baptist Palmetto. And we are going to the youth center in Palmetto, the Palmetto Youth Center. And we've got together with Palmetto Build or Build Palmetto. I can't remember which one that is. Thank you. Whoever said that. And so uh, they're gonna, we're going to throw this big, big bash at the uh, youth center. And uh, we're going to have blow-ups there. And, and when I say blow-ups, I mean... Uh, inflatables, not, not fireworks or anything like that. And then um, we're going to have a guest speaker who's going to share his testimony of how he got saved in high school. Um, he had went to church his whole life and missed the plan of salvation somehow and uh, gave his life to Christ. And he's, he's also an illusionist and going to do some tricks and stuff to gain their attention. And we're going to have free pizza, free sodas, and free uh, ice things and all this stuff for free and then we're going to give out some prizes and it's going to be a huge time. We got, we got 150 football players that don't attend any churches that are going to be on the field that we're inviting to it at, uh, uh, as soon as they're done practicing. So we're, we're planning for 500 students. So we're expecting God to do something amazing that night. We hope to see lots and lots of kids saved even that night. Um, so that's next week. So next Wednesday at about 5 o'clock be praying. Be praying that God does something amazing uh, at, at the Palmetto Youth Center and our back-to-school event. Uh, some other things that are just coming up, Miami Mission Trip. We're going to Miami Labor Day weekend. We're going to go down there and serve uh, our, our uh, church plant partner, City Church Miami. Um, we're going to go down and do a laundry project on the Saturday. So we're going to invade a laundromat and do everybody's laundry for them and tell them how much Jesus loves them. And that's what we're going to do. So uh, we've done it here a few times, and we're just going to be able to do uh, let Tommy and Kristen just go in there and love on people, and we're going to pay for everybody's laundry. So it's an exciting event that we do. Um, also on Sat uh, Sunday, we're going to be doing this uh, games things in the park where we're going to invite everybody to come together, and then Sunday night we're going to attend the church, and then Monday we're going to serve at the Florida Baptist Children's Home in Miami. So there are some things that are coming up. The breakfast clubs are starting. Uh, I was at Manatee High School this last Friday, and uh, Johnson Club is going to start in September. So I say all this stuff. Uh, uh, to, to not just fill time, because actually I'm, 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 I'm in time uh, uh, of this announcement. I do this because I want you to pray for our students. I want you to pray for our leaders, and I want you to pray for the programs that are going on, because we know that, that through the programs and through the, the leaders and, and seeing these students come, they can hear the gospel and they can get saved and their lives can change forever. 
That's what it's all about, right? So would you pray for these events and these programs that are changing? Pray that God does amazing things this year within our student ministry, that we'll see many come to Christ and many disciple for him. So, having said that, would you turn your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to John 7. We are um, continuing on in the sermon series that Pastor started, Finding Fulfillment, as we continue through the book of John. Um, Pastor taught last week um, about Jesus as he went to the, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so we're kind of piggybacking on that story. We're kind of, the rest of the story here is coming to light in John seven twenty five. Um, the festival, as Pastor said, was, was in a time where, where Jewish people would go back to Jerusalem and celebrate um, the fact that God had delivered them out of Israel, um, that he had taken care of them uh, while they were in the, the, the wilderness, and, and it gave them opportunity to look forward to the coming Messiah who would ultimately provide uh, eternal life to them, he, he, you know, the final exodus, right? And so they would stay in tents. They would stay in tabernacles. They'd have these tabernacles all lined throughout the city, and then they would go and worship. And this is where Jesus, if you remember last week, he snuck up there because the, the, the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him, and he was teaching in the temple. And this is where we pick up the story, okay? In verse 25, it says this. Some of the people of Jerusalem are saying, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? Now, real quickly, it's imperative to understand that, I think Pastor mentioned this last week, there's three groups of people that we're talking about here, okay? So you got the crowd, um, um, that, that was in verse 20. Remember, they said, who's trying to kill you? You crazy? You know, and stuff like that. And then you have the religious leaders who are actively trying to kill Jesus. We see that in verse 1 and verse 15. And then you have this third group of people, the people of Jerusalem. So you had the crowd that didn't know anything about this, you know, Jesus being trying to be killed, and then you have, then you have the, the religious leaders who are actively trying to kill him, and then you have these people of Jerusalem. So these are the people that lived in Jerusalem. These are the people that lived in the holy city where the temple was, where the presence of God rested, right? Um, and, and they were astounded by the fact that Jesus was teaching openly without being harassed or threatened. And because of his ability to openly speak without interference from the religious leaders, they began to ponder whether or not Jesus was actually the Messiah and whether they had accepted this fact. So we go on to 27, it says, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. So, so this is an objection they lob out. The, the people, uh, it wasn't based on scripture, but from folklore and misinterpretations. There, there was a belief that was going around that the Messiah would be unknown to everyone, even himself. Like he would show up from nowhere and he would show up and, and walk in, and nobody would know him, and he wouldn't even know that he was the Messiah until Elijah was resurrected, and then Elijah would anoint him, and all of a sudden he'd become the Messiah. Like, this was totally off base, right? Didn't even go along with the scripture, but they began to believe this. And so they, 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 they throw this objection at Jesus, and regardless of its origin, it was an imposing a false narrative or expectation on Jesus that was not from God, and it wasn't from the prophecy of the Messiah. These people knew Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth. They knew his family. They knew he was from lowly Nazareth. And they reasoned that surely this could not be the Messiah. He was too average. They were unsatisfied with what and how God had offered himself to them. In, in verse 28, it says, as, as he was teaching the temple, temple, Jesus cried out, You know me. 
and you know where I'm from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So, so Jesus knows their hearts, and he knows their questions, the wrong assumption. He starts off with the physical, right? He starts always with the physical with us because we can only see and experience the physical many times. And he does that in his teaching with the people here. He starts off with the physical, explaining that they knew him physically in this world, and they knew where he lived physically, right? And then Jesus, Jesus turns the conversation to the spiritual. I was sent by the one who is true. He was plainly telling them that he was from God. He makes a clear rebuke, too, which I love, that they didn't even know God. They, they lived in Jerusalem. Get this, guys. This is dangerous, right? This is dangerous for all people, not just, not just the, the, the Jerusalem Jews that lived there. They were there. They lived in the, 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 the holy city. They lived near the temple where God's presence rested among his people. So they were close to God. And Jesus said they were close, but they didn't know him. And lastly, what, what we see in here is that Jesus was sent. This means there was a plan in place by God. A plan from God was meant, that meant that Jesus had something to accomplish here on earth. As we continue, verse 30 says this, Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. These verses make it clear that God is in control. Time and time again you see this in the, the Gospels. Jesus escaping from the Pharisees. And I'm going to tell you, I wish I had a little bit more information here. Like, my mind wanders here. Like, like, like was he just turned invisible? You know, it's like, did like just couldn't see him, you know? Or like, like I, I, I don't even know. Like, did they have a wall blocking them? Like a visible wall that they're hitting, trying to get to him? They couldn't. But you see this time and time again where Jesus is standing right in front of them. Like, like, like in the middle of the temple complex, right? There's not a lot of places to go. And yet they can't get to him. And this, what, what this really points to us is that, that God is delivering him. That God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. God's timetable was not yet met, and no one would touch Jesus until it was his time. This is such a powerful statement of God's authority in this world. In verse 31, however, many of the crowd from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? I love that in every teaching that seems like that Jesus does, there's always a remnant of people who believe. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent service to arrest him. Now, uh, some have said that this may have been the secondary uh, statement of the statement above, or this was a, a completely new time that the Pharisees had actually sent out a guard to try to arrest him because they couldn't arrest him the first time. Regardless of the fact is, is that John is making a very uh, strong point of God's sovereignty to here, his control, because he mentions it a second time, and we see it fades to nothingness as Jesus continues to teach. And then Jesus said in verse 33, I am only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go so we won't find him? He, he doesn't intend to go to Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark that he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. See, Jesus is constantly drawing the people he's talking to to the eternal the heavenly, the aspect of where he came from, of where he was going and why he was there on earth. The crowd, the leaders, and the people of Jerusalem were stuck in the physical. The law for them was sufficient. 
They were looking for a conquering king, not a sacrificial lamb. And time and time again, we see that the majority of people that Jesus encounters are unsatisfied with what Jesus is truly offering and only looking to the physical needs and desires to be met. They are always seeking more. They like the wine, right? They like the bread and the food. They like the healings, the casting out of demons, the restoring of life. But when Jesus speaks of eternity, they want more. They were so focused on the physical that they lost sight of the eternal. And this is why so many have missed it. The creator of the universe was standing right in front of them, in the flesh, having done so many miracles, and they were squabbling of how he got there. He had performed miracle after miracle, sign after sign, fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. His teaching was with authority they had never seen before. But they could not bring themselves to believe because they needed more than him. When Jesus speaks of eternity, they wanted more. One more hoop that he had to, that he, they felt that he needed to jump through in order to be who he says he was. And honestly, we face that same weakness today. Many of us have given our lives to Jesus, have, have, have made him the Lord and Savior of our lives, but we are often tempted to want more, right? Want more of God. You know, in this passage, we see the gospel really being played out. The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He lived a perfect life. He was God in the flesh, came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, right? He was buried and then he came back to life. That is the gospel. But what the gospel does for us, what it does for us is it demonstrates for us God's love for us. See, Jesus declared to the people who had sent him. Uh, this is why Jesus came. God had sent him on a mission. This was not a casual love that, that drew Jesus from heaven, but a deep, unending love of God for us. His love, now this is important, get this. God's love is not based upon who we are or what we do. It is solely based on who he is. That is why he will never stop loving us based on anything that we do. The Bible says that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No, no sin can separate us. No evil deed, no hurt or pain, no evil thought can separate you from the love of God. And if you can just grasp hold of this, that that is why Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into his creation. He exposed himself to the sinful world. And he took on all that sin, and for the first time in all of eternity, he was separated from God. He said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He did all of that for us because of his love. Because he loved us so much. John 3.16, we read it earlier in this message series. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 8.31, like I said, nothing can separate us from God's love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us. And while that we, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not, not only does the gospel demonstrate for us God's love, but he also restores the relationship between God and us. The verses say he knows God, but they don't know him, right? That was the reason that Jesus came, was to fix that problem. 
John 14, 6 says this, no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was sent to fix the problem of sin so that humanity could relate back to God. That was the problem of the garden. Our sin had separated us. And yet God loved us so much, not because of something we did, because let's be real, we're not lovable. We're, we're very unlovable. Even the nicest among us, even the best among us, even me, and I'm a sweetheart. <laughs> At least that's what my wife says sometimes. Even the, the best among us, we're unlovable because we turned our backs on God and we chose sin. And yet God loved us so much that he wasn't going to let that stand because he wanted to be in relationship with us. He wanted to be in relationship with you. And so he sent Jesus to fix that problem. But the gospel also reveals God's sovereignty over all things. Both times in the passage where the Pharisees were trying to seize Jesus, man, just demonstrates how much control God has, how much power that he has. In Matthew 28, 18, all authority and power has been given to me in heaven on earth. God is in charge. The fact that he overcame death proves he has power over life and death. Everything alive and everything dead will answer to God. God loves us. God came to fix our relationship with him. And Jesus is sovereign. He's in control. So I, I guess this begs the question of this. Is there anything else that you need to be satisfied in Christ? Do you need health or healing to be satisfied in him? Do, do we need financial security? Do, do we need personal security? Do we need success? Do we need comfort? Do we need significance? Some of us, do we need children? Do we need a spouse if we're in me? Do we need more pleasure or fun? Do we need more miracles? Do we need more signs? We often look in the Bible at people that miss it and we judge them harshly. I do. I'm like, what is these people's problems? They're standing before God, the creator of the universe, and they're missing it. But often I stand in the same position of missing it. Do we need anything but Jesus and the relationship he provides to God to be happy, content, and fulfilled? Matt Chandler said this, it's not about what Jesus gets you. It's about Jesus, preeminent, top of the chain, nothing else to want, nothing else to pursue. He is enough. J.D. Greer, he says this in his book, The Gospel. The gospel has done its work in us when we crave God more than we crave everything else in life and when seeing his kingdom advance in the lives of others gives us more joy than anything we could own. When we see Jesus as greater than anything the world can offer, we'll gladly let everything go to possess him. <clears throat> In uh, June, my wife and I and our family went on a vacation, but before we left, <clears throat> my wife 
was feeling pain in her face. And um, we thought it was a dentist thing. We went to the dentist a couple days right before we left. And um, uh, went the entire vacation with this pain, didn't know exactly what it was, came back, saw a doctor, was referred to a neurologist. Neurologist did an MRI, and she has been, she was diagnosed with um, trigeminal neuralgia. Trigeminal neuralgia is a, an excruciatingly painful disease of the facial nerve, and it causes intense pain, pain that has been described as the worst pain you can feel. And um, for seven weeks, Aaron was in tremendous pain. Um, Aaron's my wife. And um, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for a long time. But I began to ask the question, why? Why, God? Why me? Why her? Why us? God, have we done something? Have, have, have we failed somewhere? Have we not served you, God? And this disease is actually called the suicide disease because it's so painful that a lot of people who have it commit suicide. Um, and so I remember one day, you know, I call her. I say, hey, babe, how you doing? How's your face? And uh, it's, it's, it's a weird thing we do now. <laughs> how's your face doing? Um, I said, hey, babe, how's your face? Oh, it, it hurts. It hurts bad. And she, I said, well, baby, how are you doing with your relationship with God? Because I'm struggling. And she says this. She says that when she feels the pain, she remembers Jesus dying on the cross, the pain that he suffered, and it makes it easier. <laughs> She should be up here preaching. <laughs> she was teaching me that we have to keep our eyes on Jesus because even if the healing doesn't come, it may not. And even if the trials don't subside, and they may not, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, it's enough. Hebrews 12.2 says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is Jesus enough if the answers don't come? If Jesus, is Jesus enough if you don't get the healing? Is Jesus enough if the pain never leaves? Is Jesus enough if you lose that person? Is Jesus enough if you don't get the job? Is Jesus enough if your spouse still leaves? Is Jesus enough if your children still abandon you? Is Jesus enough if you still feel alone? Is Jesus enough if the storm doesn't end? Is Jesus enough? I know many of you have endured more pain than Aaron and I have. You've had loss and you've, you've weathered it beautifully, trusting God. But we often have to be reminded, I know I do, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So today, instead of, you know, having this service where you come forward, I asked John to come and sing a beautiful song that has helped me to keep my eyes on Jesus in difficult times. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand up with me right now. And I'm going to ask that you would treat this 
as a sacred time with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to ask you to listen. Listen to the words of this song and ask this question yourself. Is Jesus enough? Pastor and I will be up here if anybody wants to come and pray. If Maybe you're here and you say, you know what? He is enough. And for the first time, I want to give my life to him. Man, we would want nothing more than to pray with you and lead you to Christ. We'll be here, but during this song, I'm just asking for you to ask this question. Is he enough? Is he enough?